thankful that no one's kept standing. Thank you for worshiping with us and for praying with us. Uh, We always believe that prayer and worship make a difference, and it matters. It does things that we see, and it does things that we don't see. And so we trust that as we declare and lift up the name of, of the Lord, and as we speak His healing, His hope, His life, Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 18 about a woman that kept going to the judge and asking for justice, for things to be set right. And he kept wear, she kept wearing him out. And finally he gave in because she was wearing him out. And he was telling them this, we're, we're told in Luke 18, 1, so that they would always pray and not give up. By the way, pray doesn't just mean the, the thing that you do with your head clo- eyes closed and your head bowed and your hands folded. Prayer is just the declaration. It's asking God. It's speaking His will done on earth. That's prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't have to ask for His will to be done because Jesus already did it. We just need to start saying it should be done. And sometimes you have to just keep wearing Him out. (laughs) But He's not like the unjust judge because Jesus says when God is not like that and he's going to see that his faithful ones get justice quickly, quickly. And then he ended it with this. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find a people that believe him and declare his hope in the midst of the yuck that we just read about in Isaiah chapter 8? Or will he find a people that are just caught up in the yuck? I am committed, and he is committed, to make sure Restoration Church is not caught up in the yuck. Amen? And that's why we are reading about the life you've always wanted. Great segue. And so, if you've not been with us, we're in a series based on a book by John Ortberg called The Life You've Always Wanted. And the beginning of the book, the first three chapters, are all about the life that God has made available to us through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. What we've just talked about being a part of the increase of his kingdom on the earth, declaring his will to be done, living it out, whether that's just exercising patience when there's tension in the room, whether it's speaking that kind word in the midst of an unkind word spoken to you, or whether it's praying and fasting, uh, however it is, it's living that out. And sometimes, in order to help us do that, we need these things called spiritual disciplines. Those spiritual disciplines help us get ourselves under control, help us to train ourselves, like as if we were training for a marathon, we're training to be sons and daughters of God on the earth, so that when we're in that pressure cooker of life, we can respond well because we've trained. And we've talked about the discipline in chapter 4, the practice of celebration. Now, November's not over, so for those of you that are enjoying the practice of celebration, keep on going. you got till Tuesday. Just kidding. Don't stop on Tuesday, okay? These are disciplines, as we read in the introductory um, chapters, there are different times and different seasons where you're going to have to pull these disciplines back out. When you start feeling yourself getting frustrated or weighed down, maybe extra critical, it's time to pull out the practice of celebration again. Because that's what we do. We pull it out when we need to use it to get control of our flesh in a certain way. But today, we're going to move into chapter 5, and we're going to get ready for December. And we're going to talk about the practice of slowing. The practice of slowing. In the beginning of chapter 5, 
uh, John Ortberg tells a story about a phone call that he made to Dallas Willard. Well, there's a book that that is written by John Mark Comer called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And in the introductory part of that book, John Mark Comer tells a story about a phone call that John Ortberg made to his mentor, Dallas Willard, and then John Ortberg shared that conversation with John Mark Comer. And John Mark Comer wrote that book. And a few months ago, um, uh, Pastor Mark Apple actually had read the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and he, he said, man, you need to read this book. And uh, I read it. It's a powerful book. And um, it's just interesting how that book that he gave me ties in so well with this chapter. And I wanted to read um, John Mark Comer's version of the story between John Ortberg and Dallas Willard, because as Paul Harvey says, it's kind of like the rest of the story. Um, I don't think John Ortberg gives us enough. So here it is. John, last name Ortberg, is the kind of person that you meet and immediately think, I want to be like that when I grow up. He's blisteringly smart, but more wise. Yet he never comes off remotely pretentious or stuck up. Instead, he's joyful, easygoing, comfortable in his own skin. He's a raging success, but not in that annoying celebrity way. He's kind, curious, present to you and the moment. Basically, he's a lot like how I imagine Jesus. John happens to be a pastor and writer in California who was mentored by another hero of mine, Dallas Willard. If you do not know the name Dallas Willard, you're welcome. Willard was a philosopher at the University of Southern California, but he is best known outside academia as a teacher of the way of Jesus. More than any teacher outside of the library of Scripture, his writings have shaped the way that I follow, or as Dallas would say, how I apprentice under Jesus. All that to say, John was a mentee of Willard for over 20 years, until Willard's death in 2013. I never got a chance to meet Willard, so the first time John Ortberg and I sat down in Menlo Park, I immediately started pumping him for stories. Here's one I just can't stop thinking about. John Ortberg calls up Dallas Willard to ask for advice. It's the late 90s, and at the time, John was working at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, one of the most influential churches in the world. John himself is a well-known teacher, a best-selling author, the kind of guy that you figure pretty much has apprenticeship, apprenticeship to Jesus down. But behind the scenes, John felt like he was getting sucked into the vortex of megachurch insanity. I could relate. So he calls up Willard and asks, What do I need to do to become the me I want to be? There's a long silence on the other end of the line. According to John, with Willard, there's always a long silence on the other end of the line. John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Thanks. John scribbles the line down in his journal. Then he asks, okay, what else? Another long silence. Dallas said, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual life today. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. End of story. This chapter is called The Practice of Slowing, and it's about that phrase. 
The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. In fact, there are two books that I recommend, and I have them on the screen for you. One is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. The other is called Addicted to Busy by Brady Boyd. If you find as we go through today that you have the hurry sickness that John Ortberg talks about, or that this is an area in your life where maybe you need to delve in a little deeper, if you don't want to dive into these books, the YouVersion Bible app actually just has both of these as reading plans, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry and Addicted to Busy. And so I'd encourage you during the month of December, as you read chapter five of the book, as you use the study guide, if you want to use these as another way to help us put into practice this practice of slowing. Because, to quote John Ortberg from his book, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Hurry can destroy our souls. Hurry can keep us from living well. As Carl Jung wrote, hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. For most of us, the danger is not that we are going to one day wake up and renounce our faith. Instead, the, the danger for us is that we will become so distracted, so rushed, so preoccupied, that we will eventually settle for a mediocre version of our faith. Without realizing it, our spiritual life will get sucked right out of us. In the chapter, John refers to this as the hurry sickness. Our world is obsessed we have invented more and more ways of accomplishing more and more things in less and less time. John highlights a couple of those inventions for us in the chapter. He even starts with two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. I mean, after all, it saves time and money. And then he leads us through Domino's Pizza, 30 minutes or less. The invention of fast food and the drive through and how we've been conditioned to not wait of course the invention of the smartphone in our day and the study that he highlights in the chapter the as the average person touches their cell phone 2617 times a day a day I've kind of thought maybe he's meaning like even if you text every character you're touching. But what if we called God to mind half as much as we touch this? What difference would that make in our lives? And if we're not careful, we get wrapped up in the pace of our society, the conveniences of our society to accomplish more and more in less and less time. And before we realize it, we're actually getting the spiritual life sucked right out of us. Even in the church, if you look at the chart of the rise of depression and anxiety and suicide among born-again believers, this should cause us to stop and wonder if we need to slow down. If we're getting sucked into the rat race in a way that's actually damaging our spiritual lives. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus has just sent his disciples out for ministry. All 12 of them have gone out, and they're coming back, and they're gathering around, and they're sharing stories of what's happened as they were out healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, preaching the good news. And in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6, the apostles gather around Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done and taught. And in verse 31, then because so many people 
were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. It's impossible for us to eliminate busy from our lives. Please do not, to, do not confuse busy and hurry. They're not the same. We live in a society where we are going to be at times very busy. In fact, as we serve in the kingdom, there will be very busy moments in our lives. But we have to recognize that there has to be solitude, rest, coming aside, slowing down in the midst of those seasons because Jesus urged his disciples to do it. Unfortunately, Mark chapter 6 could be a motto for most of us in the church today. There's so much coming and going that we don't even have any time to eat. Imagine Jesus saying to us on the last day, Man, what a life you had. You were too busy to eat. Well done. That's not what he said. He said, come away and be with me and rest. He urged his disciples to take a time out. Because following Jesus cannot be done as a sprint. Because you cannot go faster than the one you're following. We must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. It's not just because our bodies need rest. That's a part of this. But this idea of slowing and solitude and Sabbath and rest is far deeper than just giving our physical bodies or our souls rest. It becomes... It becomes the growing point or the launching pad for all kinds of problems in our lives, as we'll talk about throughout the month of December. We have to be committed to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Jesus was busy. Jesus often had a lot to do, but he was never in a hurry. How many times do we constantly read that Jesus would not let them do what they were determined to make him do? Even when Mary and Martha and his friend Lazarus was sick, he didn't hurry to Lazarus' side. He was deliberate. He was thoughtful. And he never got ahead of what the Father was doing. He never lived in a way that severed his life-giving connection between him and the Father. He never lived in a way that interfered with his ability to give love when love was called for. And he often practiced withdrawing from activity for the sake of solitude and prayer. Jesus was very busy. He was never hurried. Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. Hurry is a disordered heart. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the story of the parable of the sower and the different types of soil that his word is sown into, meaning our hearts, our lives. And we know in Mark chapter 4, verse 18, he's talking about the seed that was sown among the thorns. They hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. When Jesus talked about the rocky soil, he said the word in the rocky soil was received with joy and it sprang up quickly. 
we're not really told in the thorns whether it springs up quickly or slowly, whether it was received with joy or whether it was received like, well, I'm not sure. But what we know is that the, the, the thorns somehow grow up and they choke out the world, word, but we do not know what season the word is in. In the rocky soil, we assume that because it sprang up quickly, it was an immature believer or it was someone who didn't ever face hardship. And then when they faced hardship, they fell away. But here, this could happen to us at any time. I don't care how long we've served Jesus. Hurry can creep into our lives and draw out the spiritual life without us even recognizing it. This is why it's important that we learn to practice slowing. So John gives us some symptoms of hurry sickness. Now this is not an all-inclusive list, but let's let's start there. Let's see if we have the hurry sickness. The first one that he gives us is that we constantly speed up our daily activities. I mean, maybe you're someone that says, man, there's just not enough hours in a day to get it all done. We talk faster. We listen faster. We're annoyed when we have to delay or wait We listen to our podcast on one and a half speed or two speed because we want to get more in. We play these games where when we pull up to a stoplight and there's two lines, we scope it out to see which lane is going to get us there faster. And we choose that lane. Or when we go shopping, we size up all of the lines and we decide which one is going to get us to the front faster. And not only do we do that, but we make sure we remember where we would have been in a different line to see if we chose well. Because after all, we're in a hurry. And we hurry even when there's nothing pressing on our schedule. And we don't realize what that's doing to our hearts. He actually gives a very long checklist in the study guide. I have, I'll confess, I answered yes to every single one. Like, Lord help me, I have hurry sickness. I already knew that going in, but I'd encourage you to take it. Symptom number two, multitasking. You know, driving and texting, driving and talking, driving and working, driving and eating, driving and putting on our makeup, watching TV with our smartphone in our hand while having a conversation with the other people in the room. We pride ourselves in the ability to multitask. But the reality is when we multitask, nothing is getting our best. Nothing is getting our full attention, and we cannot, no matter how much we prize ourselves in it, we cannot do it well. Now, there will be times in lives in our lives that we absolutely have to multitask. If you have children, you understand. In fact, every single week, I pray for all of the people that run our camera and our, our sound and our projector because they have to, like, multitask. They have to pay attention during the worship time and make sure that we can all see the words and we can all be able to stream in when we're not able to be here in the room. But I want them to be able to do that and yet be able to encounter God at the same time. And so there is a time to multitask, but it seems like we do it more and more and more. Symptom number three, clutter. That stack of books and magazines that you're going to read someday, those closets and drawers full of the time-saving gadgets that you just haven't had time to figure out how to use yet, or those closets and drawers full of stuff that you just haven't got around to tossing out yet, 
And clutter is not just material things. It's saying yes to too many activities, too many appointments, which leads us to missed opportunities, forgotten times, stress, anxiety, uh, stretching us far too thin. Clutter. Number four, superficiality. The curse of our age. We have lots of friends, but no one really knows us. Because depth always comes slowly. In our day, we've traded wisdom for information. We've exchanged depth for breadth. And we want to microwave our maturity. It doesn't happen that way. Relationships take time. Friendships develop over time. We have to slow down. Number four goes right with it. It's an inability to love because love and hurry are incompatible. Love takes time. And time is the one thing those of us with hurry sickness don't have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, it says, Love is patient and love is kind. People cannot be seen as slowing us down or in our way. And when we prefer to text than call, it's a signal that we have hurry sickness. Number five is sunset fatigue. And I struggled to explain it, so I put a quote on the screen from the book. It says, Lewis Grant suggests we are afflicted with what he calls sunset fatigue. When we come home at the end of a day's work, those who need our love the most, those to whom we are most committed, end up getting the leftovers. Sunset fatigue is when we are just too tired or too drained or too preoccupied to love the people to whom we've made the deepest promises. Sunset fatigue has set in, Grant says, when you find yourself rushing even when there's no reason to. There's an underlying tension that causes sharp words or sibling quarrels. You set up mock races. Okay, kids, let's see who can take a bath the fastest that are really about your own need to just get through it. You sense a loss of gratitude and wonder. You indulge in self-destructive escapes from fatigue, abusing alcohol, watching too much TV, listening to country western music. Okay, the last one is not mine, is mine and not Grant's. It's because it kills love that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. Listen, hurry lies behind much of the anger and frustration of modern life. Hurry prevents us from receiving love from the Father or giving it to His children. That's why Jesus never hurried. If we are to follow Jesus, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives because by definition we can't move faster than the one we're following we can do this we can become unhurried people we can become patient people well let me just warn you that this will be easy for some of us easier for some of us than for others it will go faster for some of us than it will others but encourage each other. Through the month of December, rather than sarcastically jab at each other about how hurried we are right now, let's find ways to encourage each other to just slow down in the midst of it and speak life and hope and peace over people that are hurried and not a sarcastic reminder of what pastor said on Sunday, especially if you ride to, the, to school with the pastor. Hint, hint. <laughs> so let's look at the cure. 
He gives us three cures, and I'll give them to you briefly today. We're going to come back and talk about them later in the month. But again, it's not like you get cured from hurry sickness and then we never have to pick up these disciplines again. We have to practice these disciplines at different times in our lives. And the first one is slowing. Slowing. Slowing is where we deliberately place ourselves in a position where we have to wait. Who would do that? (laughs) So, when you're driving, don't change lanes. Stay in the lane that you're in and pray for the people that pass you. Eh, Saying you have to do it every time. But choose it. Choose it one day. Today, I'm going to drive in this lane, and I'm just not. And watch the tension (laughs) that you have to fight. Eat slowly. Chew your food at least 15 bites before swallowing. You're like, Pastor Tom, this is not very spiritual. Oh, yes, it is. It's far more spiritual than any of us realize. Let someone in front of you when you go to the store and you're standing in line. Go an entire day without wearing a watch. (laughs) Or without your phone. I saw someone on Facebook that their family left their phones at home and they went out for a day. (laughs) Praise God. Find a different way to choose waiting. A way that makes hurry impossible. And as we practice them, we have to tell God that we're trusting Him to enable us to get more accomplished than if we hurry. Because often when we rush, we actually accomplish less than we would have if we had taken our time. Researchers have found, John tells us, that there's no correlation between hurry and type A behavior and productivity. Here's another one. Stop finishing other people's sentences. Slow down and let them finish. Yeah. Practice. Practice slowing down. The study guide gives some great resources. I'd encourage you to read through it. Practice slowing through the month of December. The second one is the idea of solitude. And I shared with you a couple months ago about a solitude day that I had had. I had heard about this discipline of solitude four different times by four different people. John Mark Comer was one. Um, Marty Solomon on the Bama podcast was one. Um, Dallas Willard was one. And then when I read uh, John Ortberg's book, I was like, okay, I've heard it four times. I feel like God is trying to tell me something. Solitude is stepping aside for an extended period of quiet, alone time. It's deliberately stepping away from what tries to conform us. So stepping away from music and television and social media, but also from our schedules, from pressure, from the needs and expectations of people. It's a lot like fasting, but it's stepping away from the routine entirely for an extended period of time. And I know every mother in the room is like, sign me up. And I want to challenge you. Sometime in the next six months, you need to do a day of solitude. Whether it's three hours, if you can go up to eight hours, and I know for some of you, your first thought is that's impossible, pray for it. 
God, give me a chance to do an eight-hour eight hour solitude day and then put it on your calendar. I don't care if it's six months out. Put it on your calendar. Practice solitude. John reminds us in the chapter, at its heart, solitude is primarily about not doing something. Just as fasting means to refrain from eating, so solitude means to refrain from society. When we go into solitude, we withdraw from conversation, from the presence of others, from noise, from the constant barrage of stimulation. In solitude, Henry Nowen wrote, I get rid of my scaffolding. Scaffolding is all the stuff we use to keep ourselves propped up, to convince ourselves that we are important or okay. In solitude, we have no friends to talk with, no phone calls, no meetings, no television sets, no music, no books, no newspapers to occupy and distract our minds. Each of us would be, in the words of the old hymn, just as I am. Neither accomplishments, nor resumes, nor possessions, nor networks would define me. Just me and my sinfulness, my desire or lack of desire for God. Schedule a time when you can get away for three plus hours with a Bible and a notebook and some food and water. And just sit. No music, no phone, no internet. Just sit. It'll take you at least four hours to quiet yourself. To stop thinking about everything else and everyone else. And then just listen. And you'll be surprised (laughs) at what comes up in that time. Don't go into it thinking, you know, the heavens are going to open and Jesus is going to descend. But I promise you, it'll affect you. And it'll help you to learn how to, to practice solitude even when there are other people around. How to not let the expectations and pressures of others force you into things that you shouldn't step into. Practice solitude. The last one, and we're going to take a lot of time next week or the next time we go into this to really look at that, and it's the idea of Sabbath. We do not understand Sabbath. There is so much in Sabbath. Um, It is the weekly rhythm of learning to slow ourselves and rest. In the book of Exodus, chapter 31, when Moses and the people of Israel are gathered around Mount Sinai and God is giving them the covenant law, he says, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Now, I want to talk about that word holy. We've talked about this before. That word holy just means to be set apart. And some of us, because of our upbringing, all kinds of images come to mind or thoughts come to mind when we hear this word holy. Holy just means set apart, to be totally unique, one of a kind. Like That is why God is holy. There's no one like Him. He is by Himself, unequaled, and He makes us like Himself, set apart, unequaled, totally different. This idea of Sabbath is the Hebrew word Shavat. It just means to rest. And it is all throughout the Scripture. It is not just about taking a day off from work to go to church. It's so much bigger than just a list of rules 
of things we can and can't do on a certain day of the week. This is worked into the Hebrew life, the feasts that they were given. If you notice that in verse 13, it says, observe my Sabbaths, plural. Gee, the, the law includes seven different feasts that they were to, to practice throughout the year. And every one of those feasts had a time of rest, a time of celebration, a time of remembering. The land itself was supposed to have a Sabbath, a rest, every seven years. Now, if you're a farmer and you're planting your food and that's all you have to live on, and the Lord comes along and says, in the sixth year, I'll just provide you enough to last you so that you don't have to plant anything in the seventh year so the land can rest, so that you can learn that I provide for you, you don't provide for yourself. And I'll provide you enough so that until the harvest comes on the eighth year, you'll have enough food to eat, you'll have enough provision, and I'll make sure it happens. Sounds easy enough, right? No, it doesn't. But it's so important that we learn that Sabbath is so far beyond just a day of the week. In the book of Hebrews that we're going to look at next time, There's a Sabbath rest that we're called to make sure that we enter as the people of God. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, the seventh day is different. I don't have this one on the screen, but chapter 2, verse 1. You remember the creation story? There was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. There was evening, there was morning the third day. We come to the seventh day, and the seventh day, God finished His work. And on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And he blessed the seventh day and he made it holy, set apart, totally unique, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had ever done. And do you know what there is not on the seventh day? There is no evening and there is no morning. Because the seventh day was not supposed to end. All of the work that Adam and Eve were supposed to do as the the caretakers of God's world were supposed to be done from a place of rest. But what happened when sin entered the world and the curse came? Now all of your work is going to require toil and labor by the sweat of your brow. Sabbath is gone. There's evening, there's morning. So why does God come along and institute the Sabbath in Exodus? Because He wants His people to get a taste of Eden. The time when work is not going to be a labor and a toil. And it's less about what activities you do and don't do, and it's about the position of your heart and making sure that you're trusting God as your provider. Because our work is important, and our work is vital. But we don't provide for ourselves. And when we stop Sabbathing, when we stop resting on a regular basis, everything gets disordered in our lives we start thinking we provide for ourselves. And we provide for ourselves way better than those people provide for themselves. And I don't understand why other people in our society don't work as hard as I do. You know what that stems from? That stems from a lack of rest. That stems from a lack of trusting that God is your provider and your work ethic hasn't provided for you. In fact, the fact that you have a work ethic comes from God too. Everything we have comes from Him. So when my relationships are disordered, whether it's my relationship with God or my relationship with other people on earth, it might be a sure sign that I haven't entered into the Sabbath 
rest cycle that God's called me weekly to enter into to remember he's my provider, to remember that he's my deliverer, to remember that he's my portion, to remember it's, it's about resetting my mind, my heart, one day a week, reset, reset, reset. Oh, God, you're my provider. You're my help. You're my hope. There's supposed to be a meal with it. Otherwise, pride and selfishness. If you remember how many times the prophets condemned the people for not remembering the Sabbath, and then they talked about the selfishness. You've forgotten the poor and the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. Then the stinginess. You're not paying the workers their wages that you owe them. You're robbing them. You're robbing me. All because they didn't practice Sabbath. It's so much more than taking a day off every single day week. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus comes along and declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's the thing. When you come to follow Jesus, you get a yoke and you get a burden. But if it's not rooted in him, It'll be, you, we'll serve him out of a place of frustration and anger and resentment. And there'll be selfishness and there'll be stinginess and there'll be church splits and there'll be fights and there'll be who's right and who's wrong. And the world will not see a picture of a church that's one because we stopped practicing Sabbath, the art of resting in him. It's not my job to change you or convince you of anything. It's my job to let him change me and to serve you and to love you and let him change me. And I do that when I Sabbath. I stop being responsible for you and I just start being responsible for me because Sabbath reminds me that he's got you just as much as he's got me. That's Sabbath. And it's so beautiful. And we're going to take a whole day and just talk about Sabbath because it's so Beautiful, and it goes from Genesis all the way to the end of the book. If you read Revelation 21 and 22, you get a retaste of, of Eden. You see Sabbath. We have this faulty idea that we're going to be in heaven with our hands raised singing songs all of eternity. Don't get me wrong. We're going to worship God in that way in heaven. But we're also going to do what we were supposed to do in the garden, work. But not from a place of toil and labor, from a place of rest. We go all the way back to Eden. And every week, God wants us to reset and remember. He's my provider. <laughs> and when we don't, our relationships go crazy. Our emotions go crazy. Some of us, we just need Sabbath. We just need Sabbath. So this month in December, remember, a few more days of celebration. Please keep celebrating. Read chapter 5. The practice of slowing. Read some of the version plans. Use the study guide. Find a way to deliberately slow down. At least one day a week, slow down. Plan a solitude day. Put it on your calendar. Start practicing the weekly Sabbath. And then I put three things on the screen. I want us to do this. I'm the academic advisor at James Valley, which is basically like a guidance counselor, only I don't have a counseling degree. 
And I get these, <laughs> these emails from the lady that's in charge of the state, and she sends me breathing exercises. <laughs> I kid you not. I used to make fun of them because it would be like focus on the dot on the screen and breathe in and breathe out and think about it. And uh, I was reading um, from the Bible Project. I was talking, they were talking about Sabbath. And then, they, then I read these. Take some deep breaths. And remember that every breath we take is a gift from God. While you inhale and exhale, reflect on God and your reliance on Him. If you just practice stopping in the middle of your day and just focus on your breathing and focus on God and everything that He's given you and the fact that He's with you in that moment, it's like you're breathing in in love. And if the people of the world can send emails to the guidance counselors in our state and talk about how important just breathing is. He's our breath. And sometimes you just need to stop and breathe. And so I want to challenge you. Take some deep breaths this week. And as you're doing this, invite God into one aspect of your life that feels exhausting or overwhelming. Tell him one thing that's weighing on you and ask for his provision. And then as you do, remember that he cares for you and he wants you to experience his rest. He hears you. And then reflect on some of the gifts God has already given to meet your needs. And what are the reasons that you're thankful today? You can do that in 60 seconds. And I want us to end our service today doing just that. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to take some deep breaths. And as you breathe in, and as you breathe out, I just want you to think about God and your reliance upon Him. I would even say His passionate commitment to you. He is so passionately committed to you. Just breathe Him in. If there's a place in your life where you are just overwhelmed, and some of you might be like, uh, just one, give them all. Give them all. Just name them as you're breathing in and out right now. Just picture yourself laying every single one of them at His feet. Philippians 4 says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, make your request known to God. That's what you're doing. Where are you overwhelmed? Lay that list right in front of Him. Every relationship, every health concern, every financial need, all of it, breathing in and out. He's with you. He's with you. Think of the things that He's already done for you. His faithfulness in the past. And begin to just thank Him. Father, thank You for Your passionate commitment to us. To each and every one of us as individuals today. You've numbered the hairs on our head. You know every day of our lives, even before one of them came to be. You are committed to finishing the work you started in each and every one of our lives. 
Thank you for your commitment to our church, to this corporate body of believers. God, even in this season where we don't know exactly where, where you're calling us to or what you're calling us into, God, we know that you're with us. And so we thank you for providing this room to meet in and that camera that those that can't be in the room with us today can be a part of this service with us. God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you that you're going to finish the work you've started. Thank you for the commitment you have to our community, to our state, to our nation, to this world. God, you are going to finish that work. Your kingdom is going to increase. It will not end. And so today we just rest in that promise. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that over these next few weeks, that you teach us the practice of slowing, the practice of solitude, the practice of rest. Teach us to live from a place of rest. Show us what it means to truly Sabbath and to keep all of your Sabbaths. So, Father, thank you for what lies ahead. Thank you for the things that you're going to show show us and do in us in these weeks ahead. Thank you for your commitment to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, we are going to be a patient people. We're going to be a people that know how to rest. We're going to be a people that know how to celebrate. And we're going to be a people that know how to rest. Are you excited? I'm excited. All right. Well, thank you for being here. Don't forget to stop at the table out in the lobby. You can uh, pick up calendar. You can give in the offering baskets that are out there, Global Outreach and Help Fund are out there today. Thank you for your faithfulness in giving. If you're new, there's some information about our church back there as well, and we've got a gift for you. God bless you as you go today.